Hi there, podcast listeners. This is Elvis Presley, welcoming you to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 11, The Elvis Presley Conspiracy. Some folks say I died of a heart attack on August 16, 1977 in Memphis, Tennessee, while sitting on the throne at Graceland. But some folks say it was a drug overdose, while some more folks say I was murdered. Others think I'm still alive and I work for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. So listen here. Let's run down this conspiracy and find out what really happened to the king. Thank you. Thank you very much. The call came to Memphis Fire Station Number 29 at 2.33 p.m. on August 16, 1977. The dispatcher indicated that someone at 3754 Elvis Presley Boulevard was having difficulty breathing. Go to the front of the mansion. The gate will be open, the voice said. An ambulance swung out of the station onto Elvis Presley Boulevard and headed south, siren wailing, maintaining a high speed. The two medics manning the ambulance recognized the address right away. It was Elvis Presley's home, Graceland, three miles south of the fire station. Two years before, the medics had come to assist Elvis's father, Vernon Presley, after he suffered a heart attack, and they thought it might be Vernon again. As the ambulance drove towards Graceland and the gate swung open, the crowd milling around the entrance parted. Making a wide sweeping turn to the left, the vehicle bounced heavily across the sidewalk and hurtled through the entranceway, striking one of the swinging metal gates a clanging blow. One of the several musical notes welded to the gate fell off. The ambulance accelerated up the curving drive towards the mansion and braked hard in front of the two-story white-columned entrance. Here they were met with Elvis's bodyguards. He's upstairs, one of the men exclaimed, and I think it's an overdose. They rushed upstairs into Elvis's bedroom and then were pointed towards the bathroom where over 12 people milled about over a body of a man in mismatched silk pajamas, a yellow top, and blue bottoms. At first sight, the medics didn't recognize Elvis. The man was stretched out on his back on the thick red rug with his pajama top open and his bottoms pulled down below his knees. They noted he was very dark, almost black. One medic thought that he might have been a black man. From his shoulders up, his skin was dark blue, he later told reporters. A young man was pressing Elvis's chest rhythmically, while a middle-aged woman gave him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. The medics swooped in fast and looked for a pulse, and they couldn't locate one. Then they noted that Elvis was very cold, unusually cold, and they believed he had been clinically dead for a very long time. We think he OD'd, came a voice from the crowd. The medics determined the best course of action was to take Elvis to the hospital, and they retrieved a stretcher and took Elvis out the front door, noting that he weighed more than they had anticipated. They claimed he weighed between 230 to 250 pounds. As they reached the ambulance, a green Mercedes-Benz raced up the driveway and lurched to a stop. It was Elvis's doctor, George Nicopolis, otherwise known as Dr. Nick. As the ambulance raced down the driveway and up the boulevard, Dr. Nick worked desperately on the body, shouting to the dead man not to die, that he could not die, that he had to live, for God's sakes, live. The doctor performed CPR the whole way to the hospital, chanting, Breathe, Elvis. Come on. Breathe for me. It is a curious matter, however, that both medics on scene believed that Elvis had been dead for a long while, and yet the doctor was performing CPR and trying to revitalize a seemingly dead corpse en route to the hospital. The ambulance left Graceland at 2.48 and was en route to Methodist South Hospital, only blocks away from Graceland. When Dr. Nick ordered the ambulance to drive further another 16 minutes to Baptist Memorial Hospital. Later, it was revealed that Dr. Nick preferred this hospital because they were more discreet in dealing with celebrity patients. The hospital also maintained a superbly well-trained crew of 18 doctors, nurses, and medical specialists to deal with life or death situations. 
the team worked on Elvis for 20 full minutes before delivering the news that nothing could be done to save Elvis. In fact, some of the team questioned the matter from the very start. He was dead, very dead, and there was no helping a man who had died hours beforehand. Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, one of the greatest performers of all time, was dead. It was, at the time, unbelievable. And Elvis's estate was in complete chaos. Even before the ambulance was called, someone had leaked the death to the media. Witnesses claimed that even during this time, some people were walking out with trophies, valuables, and with Elvis memorabilia and mementos. However, the police were never called and only participated in the security of Elvis Presley's corpse while at the morgue. They retrieved basic statements from Dr. Nick, who would not specify how Elvis died. Dr. Nick went back to Graceland in the afternoon to secure a signature from Vernon Presley, Elvis's father, authorizing an autopsy. The autopsy was conducted by a specially selected and highly skilled team of nine pathologists, headed by the hospital's chief of pathology, Dr. E. Eric Muirhead, Dr. Jerry Francisco, the medical examiner for Shelby County, closely observed the proceedings. It would be his responsibility to declare the world the official cause of Elvis Presley's death. Early on, a meticulous dissection of the body revealed what Elvis did not die from. It was not heart failure, stroke, cancer, or lung disease, the usual killers. It also confirmed what his doctors already knew. Elvis was chronically ill with diabetes, glaucoma, and constipation. As they proceeded, the doctor saw evidence that his body had been racked over a span of years by a large and constant stream of drugs. They had also studied his hospital records, which included two admissions for drug detoxification and methadone treatments. Over time, Elvis had, in effect, been poisoned. The bloated body, the puffy eyelids, and the constipation reflected the slow death. They prepared multiple specimens from the corpse fluids and organs to be identified anonymously and sent to several well-respected laboratories across America for analysis. Chances seemed high that Elvis had, in fact, overdosed. After Elvis's body had been wheeled away to the morgue, he told them that Elvis had been pronounced dead at 3.30 p.m., apparently of heart failure. Elvis died of heart failure, suddenly and without warning. It was a crisis that could not have been avoided. No one was at fault in Elvis's demise. They concluded this without the completion of the pathological report, however. They further stated that the true cause of death may never be discovered, but stressed that drugs had nothing to do with it. The image of Elvis was intact. Radio station played tribute music. His fans worldwide mourned. Live from the Mid-South's leading news station. Good afternoon. I'm Peggy Rolfs. And I'm Lee Edwards sitting in for Dick Williams, and this is the news at noon. Stunned fans mill around the gates of Elvis Presley's Whitehaven mansion this afternoon while scores of fans, friends, and show business celebrities pour into Memphis for funeral services tomorrow for the king of rock and roll. Mason Granger is standing outside the gates at Graceland right now and has this live action cam report. Pan over a little bit with the camera right over here. Hundreds of people here. They've been gathering all morning long. There was only a small group at about 6 or 7 o'clock this morning, but as you can see, it's grown to a huge number of people right now at noon. Elvis Presley's body just arrived here at Graceland. A hearse carrying the singer's body left the Memphis funeral home winding its way down Elvis Presley Boulevard to Graceland. The hearse quickly turned down a side street and pulled into Graceland by the back entrance. Elvis's coffin was taken from the hearse and placed in the mansion's music room. At three o'clock, the fans started filing in for their last view of Elvis. The coffin was open. Elvis was dressed in a white suit, blue shirt, and blue tie. 
Elvis's own family. Some members of the family arrived last night at the Memphis International Airport, including Priscilla Presley, who is Elvis's ex-wife. She arrived with other members of the family last night to be here for Elvis's funeral tomorrow. An autopsy shows Presley died of an extremely irregular heartbeat. The exact cause of that fatal flaw may never be known, but the medical examiner says drugs were not the cause. Hypertension and a disease of the arteries may have been contributing factors. As Mason indicated earlier, the body will be on public view at Graceland this afternoon from 3 to 5 o'clock, and a private service will be held tomorrow afternoon at 2. We have an unconfirmed report that singer Tom Jones will deliver the eulogy. Among the many celebrities arriving overnight for the funeral, as Mason said, were Burt Reynolds and Anne Margaret. They went straight to the Graceland Mansion. The King of Rock and Roll will be placed in a mausoleum at Forest Hill Cemetery. Most radio stations in Memphis are playing Elvis records, and thousands of motorists drove to work this morning with their headlights on to indicate publicly their mourning. But as the world mourned at the death of the king of rock and roll, rumors began swirling about Elvis's last years, his last days, his last night, and what was the real cause of his death, or even more bizarre, how he managed to fake his own death. Vernon Presley was one of the first to question what was really going on. He had distrust of Dr. Nick of the medical examiner's report, of Elvis's friends and the staff. He had suspicion that Elvis had been murdered. And Vernon was not alone. Elvis's last days were very stressful, not only on himself, but also on his staff and anyone around him. Elvis was not recording in studio any longer, and he had no movie contracts and he was required to continually perform live in order to maintain the lifestyle he and the others enjoyed. Whereas a manager and promoter would typically take about 15% of profits, Elvis's manager, known as Colonel Tom Parker, took an excess of 50% and he was demanding more. Elvis had not toured outside the US except for the brief shows in Canada, and he was looking forward to revitalizing his career abroad particularly in the UK and Western Europe. He was also very stressed about putting the whole show together. He was slightly, but not grossly, overweight. He was tired of himself and a little depressed, and was looking forward to a complete changeover. He wanted to get back into shape and to make drastic changes in his life, including re-establishing a relationship with Priscilla, his ex-wife, because he missed regular family life with her and his daughter. It was rumored also that Elvis was about to break up with his current girlfriend, Ginger Alden. As the tour was being planned, Elvis and Vernon fire a few of his long-term employees, including Red West, Sonny West, and Dave Hebler, because of spontaneous disputes. Elvis had left each with money, and they claimed that Elvis planned on hiring them back anyway, but he was just being stubborn. But before getting hired back, the three, together with tabloid columnist Steve Dunleavy, wrote a scathing expose of Elvis entitled, Elvis, What Happened? According to their own accounts, the reason for writing the book was not for financial gain or revenge, but to get him to face up to reality and do something about his destructive lifestyle before it was too late. The book tells a story of Presley's personal life as seen through the eyes of Red, Sonny, and Hebbler, it tells of incidents relating to his sex life, drug use, musical career, and his relationship with each of the three men. Names of the people written about in the book, for the most part, are changed to respect their privacy, although this has led some to believe that a lack of name sources suggests these people and incidents never really existed. The book went on sale in July and was not an immediate success. It was only after Elvis' death that the book became extremely popular and went on to sell 3 million copies. Not only were these three bodyguards on the outs, it seemed as if others too, still employed by the Elvis estate, were on the outs. Bodyguards, promoters, band members, everyone was fired or rehired or didn't know what the hell was going on 
as the new tour was being put together. Even the colonel was fired and rehired and fired again. Elvis was said to be stressed out and suggested he simply take a whole year off to relax in either Hawaii or his Palm Springs house. Some feel that a vengeful employee had slipped Elvis prescription drugs that fateful night that mixed with others he was taking caused a toxic concoction and ultimately death. If Elvis's death was a crime scene, it wasn't treated as such. The room and the house filled with dozens of onlookers. The police were never called, never inspected, never photographed, never questioned. The cleaning staff at Graceland meticulously cleaned the bathroom before the ambulance had arrived and shortly after the body was recovered. The carpet was scrubbed clean. The staff then went to work on the bedroom and dressing rooms in a curious cleanup affair. Why did they need to clean up? Who ordered the immediate cleaning? Elvis nearly always carried a firearm with him, carried them on stage, and in some instances wore bulletproof vests while performing. He was concerned over his safety and obviously did not fully trust his security detail as much as one would. Others have come to a different conclusion about who was responsible for the murder of Elvis. Susanna Lee was a friend of Elvis's, whom she starred in the 1966 film Paradise, Hawaiian Style. For years, she had been plagued by doubts about his death. As soon as I saw the photos of the aftermath of Elvis's death, alarm bells went off in my head, she says. There was a picture of a woman who was close to Elvis standing in the doorway at Graceland in the middle of the night, just hours after his death. She looked immaculate, her makeup perfect. What was wrong with this? Well, if the love of my life had been found dead, I would have looked like the Witch of Endor, mascara streaming down my face, she continues. Although we were only friends, I had been in love with Elvis since I was 11. My dreams of meeting him came true when I was cast in Paradise Hawaiian style. We bonded immediately and became true soulmates. Elvis, who was very religious, loved my stories about my English convent school. The first time he took my hand was on set. We only kissed twice, but there was the promise of many more intimacies to come. We remained friends throughout my passionate affair with Richard Harris and wanted to make another movie together, but it was never meant to be, she says. Colonel Tom Parker never liked our friendship, mainly because I was introducing him to actors like Richard Harris. Elvis wanted to be a real actor, but Colonel Parker only looked for the easy money. I was asleep in London when Elvis died, having returned to Britain in the 70s. In the years that followed, I continued my career in England. Then in 2003, I put my connection with Elvis to use by going to work as a VIP tour guide at Graceland. It was there that I first heard rumors from people on the estate that Elvis had been murdered, she says. And then, when I went to the library to find out more, I discovered that many reputable people believed his death from apparent heart failure compounded by drug abuse was not straightforward. One book pointed the finger at Elvis's doctor, Dr. Nick, who prescribed scores of pills for the patient, although it's hard to believe he would kill his paymaster. The most interesting theory was by British journalist John Parker, who claimed there was a mafia connection, she continues. Then there's the fact that the post-mortem report will not be available until 2027. Why would the Federal Bureau of Investigation lock away documents if there was nothing to hide? I soon learned Elvis had in fact been part of one of the largest FBI investigations of the 70s, codenamed Fountain Pen. Apparently, he had been the innocent victim in a mafia fraud case involving billions of dollars. Scores of federal agents worldwide had investigated it, and Elvis was due to give evidence. The FBI was meant to be protecting Elvis when he died. Despite this, Elvis's death has never been officially investigated. The first person I talked to as I tried to understand more about the mystery was Beecher Smith, who had been Elvis's lawyer, she says. He told me that as part of the investigation, Elvis and his father were supposed to appear in front of a federal grand jury on August 16, 1977, the day Elvis died. 
My next port of call was George Klein, who had been at school with Elvis. He told me that just before his death, Elvis, who was a mess because of his hectic workload, had decided to take a year off and sacked half his staff, including Colonel Parker. When he sacked his band, tempers were running so high that they brought out a salacious book about him just two weeks before he died. It all got so nasty that Elvis was forced to employ a team of security people who were all ex-cops, headed by Dick Robb, a former police sergeant. George told me Elvis was so serious about giving up work that he had rented a house in Hawaii and planned to get fit again. To find out more, I went to see Grob. Though upset when talking about it all, he confirmed that Vernon, Elvis's father, always believed his son was murdered. When Elvis died, Grob had launched his own investigation, questioning everyone in the house as to where they were that night and logging every call. He claims records show someone phoned a newspaper from Graceland at 1am to alert them that there was a big story coming out that night, an hour before emergency services were called. Then he made a truly extraordinary allegation. Elvis died of a massive codeine overdose, he told me. It doesn't matter what other things they say he died of, that is what he really died of. I could hardly believe what I was hearing, she says. I knew Elvis was allergic to codeine. Could someone have tricked him into ingesting it, she explains. Someone even washed the carpet where Elvis had fallen. Imagine that, she says, cleaning up before the police arrive. It could only have been someone really close to Elvis that could have ordered that. George Klein had told me that many suspicions were focused on Colonel Parker. Beecher Smith, meanwhile, said Parker had a lot to gain from Elvis's death. Only a day after the death, he had persuaded the singer's father to sign over to him 50% of the King's posthumous earnings. The news about Colonel Parker didn't surprise me. I never liked him, she says. Yet, though, there were a lot of incentives for him to dispatch his protege. He wasn't there that fateful night. So how did Elvis die? In Dick Grob's opinion, it was organized by the mob. He told me they did not want Elvis or his father to appear in court because of all the media interests it would create. So they must have got someone inside the house. That's what Vernon believed all along, said Dick. Someone from inside let the killer into the house. This was explosive stuff and I suspected I was on the right track because odd things started happening to me, she says. First, a wheel fell off my truck while I was driving. If I had been going faster, I could have been killed. A mechanic I saw afterwards said the nuts on the other wheels were also about to come off. Somebody had been messing with them. Then one night, as I was walking my dog, I stood like a rabbit in the headlights while a young black girl, not more than 20, stuck her arm out of the window of a passing car and fired at least five very loud shots from a handgun, which hit some of the trees above me. On another occasion, someone broke into my car, then someone tried to break into my house and stabbed one of my other dogs. To this day, I suspect someone wanted me out of the way. I didn't wait to find out who before I left town, she says. I know people will find it hard to believe these claims, but I knew the real Elvis. And after what's happened to me, I'm more convinced than ever that we are a long way from discovering the full truth about his death, concludes Susanna. Others are also convinced that something strange happened that fateful night but their interpretation of events conclude that Elvis was not murdered. In fact, they believe Elvis did not die at all. Detective Mulder from the X-Files television program sums it up. I think Howard Grace fabricated his own death. Do you know how difficult it is to fake your own death? Only one man has pulled it off. Elvis. Yes. Some people believe that Elvis Presley fooled us all, either to exit the entertainment industry in good terms, relatively good looking, and technically the king, or to go into hiding, 
due to his undercover work with the Drug Enforcement Agency of the United States. There is no doubt, Elvis was fascinated by law enforcement, and even as a child wanted to be a police officer. He collected badges from several police departments and agencies. The most requested item in the U.S. National Archives, more popular than the photo of the moon landing, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights, is the iconic image that shows the meeting between the President and the King. The real-life encounter between Elvis Presley and President Nixon in the Oval Office in December 1970. On an American Airlines flight to Washington, D.C., Elvis, who rarely wrote, requested notepaper and proceeded to pen a letter to the president offering any service I can help the country out with and requesting to be made a federal agent at large. Elvis explained the reason for this visit. His desire was for a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. The singer was a collector of police badges and believed this one would give him the special powers and freedoms of a federal agent. Nixon granted his wish for a badge and the meeting concluded as Elvis put his arm around the president and hugged him. Was Elvis a real undercover agent or was this just a fantasy he believed to be true? There are reports that Elvis had in fact used badges and represented himself as a lawman. In one instance, he even had a handheld police siren and chased down a speeding motorist and warned the driver against excessive speed, but pardoned him and didn't issue a ticket. The motorist, totally flabbergasted, drove off. There was also a time Elvis stopped a plane on the runway using his narcotics badge to pursue his employee. Hamburger James, who he had learned was stealing jewelry from Elvis. On the plane, Elvis read his best version of the Miranda rights, and the Memphis Mafia, Elvis's bodyguards, took James back to their hotel room. Elvis smacked James in the face a couple times, and then he started crying, asking James why he did not just ask for the money. Elvis said he would keep him on as an employee. But James declined and was paid a severance package, never to deliver hamburgers to Elvis again. But even through this humorous engagement, Elvis would seriously talk on stage about law enforcement and his involvement. Some people believe these were just his fantasies or some drug-induced rambling. But Elvis had, in fact, never taken street drugs and was very much so against them and their use. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Bill Cosby. Uh, Elvis closed last night. I'm a little lighter skinned than you thought I was. And I, I don't have a natural light like I would do on my TV show, you know. Me and old Harold. I mean, uh, not Harold. What's his name? Albert. Fat Albert. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Hey, look, look, look. Somebody gave me this thing here. Yeah, it really is. Somebody gave it to me. And I'm, I, I just got an eighth degree black belt in karate. And, uh, after 16 years of, 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 of doing this art every day for 16 years, I was awarded the eighth degree, which carries a, let's see, eighth degree. There's only 10 degrees of black. So the eighth degree I, I just got this week. The ninth degree carries senior master of the art, the next one. And the 10th is Senior Grand Master of the Art. So that's, that's where i got to strive to go to, which takes quite a while. You know? <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like you to meet one of the fellows who promoted me to the 8th degree black. His name is Ed Parker. He has about 18 Kenpo schools around the country. Ed Parker. There's another fellow in the audience. See that book. This friend of mine, his name is John Grady. He he'd written a book. He was he was head of the narco squad in Ali, at Los Angeles for 26 years. And on the 166th page, he's got about uh, 
three pages about me and my uh, ex-wife or so, and about our friendship, and about that maternity suit. It turned out to be a complete conspiracy and a hoax, man. <laughs> and I just no way. I had a picture made with that chick, and that's all. I mean, she got pregnant with a camera, a Polaroid or something. <laughs> anyway, it's all in this book. It's the and watching Polaroid cameras, water. <laughs> but you know what she did? And when she goofed up, she named the night. And the night that she named, my wife was in. No, my wife was with me in the in the audience. And that's the night she said, "Ain't no way I'm gonna fool around with her out there." Are you kidding me? <laughs> so anyway, let me tell you something. If you like things like the French Connection, the Chinese Connection, the, the uh, British Connection, the knee connection to the jump bone, if you like that type of stuff, buy this book. It's called O'Grady. It'll be in print when, John? September 27th. It will fascinate you. It's about 26 years of a hardline policeman working in the narco squad out of Hollywood. So you can imagine what it's like. By this book, it's called O'Grady. Okay. I, uh, John just came back from New York where he had a meeting of this. I have been a member of this organization for five years. The International Narcotics Enforcement Officers Association in recognition of the outstanding loyalty and contribution to the support of narcotic law enforcement, this award of special honor is bestowed upon Elvis Presley in testimony, so and so, lifetime member, and an International Narcotics Enforcement Officers Association. So I just got that. So I don't pay any attention to rumors. I don't pay any attention to movie magazines. They don't read them because they're all junk. And, uh, no, I, 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 don't, I don't mean to put anybody's job down. I'm talking about they have a job to do, and they got they got to write something. So if they don't know anything, they make it up, you know. So in my case, they make it up. When I hear rumors flying around, I got sick in the hospital. Well, I was, you know, in this day and time, you can't even get sick. You are strung out. Well, by God, I'll tell you something, friend. I have never been strung out in my life, except on music. When I got sick here in the hotel, I got sick here that one night, I had 102 temperature, they wouldn't let me perform. From three different sources I heard, I was strung out on heroin. I swear to God, hotel employees, Jack, bellboys, freaks that carry your luggage up to the room, people working around, you know, talking, maids, and I was sick. I was, you know, I was getting, had a doctor, had the flu, and I got over one day, was I? But all across this town, I was strung out. So I told him earlier, and don't you get offended, ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking to somebody else. If I find or hear the individual that has said that about me, I'm going to break your goddamn neck, you son of a bitch. That is dangerous, that is damaging to myself, to my little daughter, to my father, to my friends, my doctor, to everybody in my relationship with you, my relationship with up here on the stage, it is dangerous. I will pull your goddamn tongue out by the roots. Thank you very much. Anyway, how many of you people saw the movie Blue Hawaii? Probably the most requested song, let me get out of this mood. Probably the most requested song in, in the movie was the Hawaiian wedding songs. Let me do that for you. This is the moment I've waited for. I can hear my heart singing. Blah, 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 blah. Soon we'll be ringing. This is the moment of love, sweet 
Hello, I will love you long and forever. That's beautiful, I think. Promise me that you. I take this and I'm strong out. <laughs> you don't mind if I use it to show it, do you? Things that are written in movie magazines about me are trash. <laughs> Rumors that you hear about me are trash. I'm an eighth degree black belt in karate. I'm a federal narcotics agent. I am. I swear to God. No, I, you, gotta, you know, you can do whatever you want to do. I'm just saying what I am. They don't give you that if you're strung out, if you're done. No, 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 no. On the contrary, I have to be straight as an arrow because uh, I'm around people all the time and I don't like to get uh, out of it. In either way, I don't drink booze, I don't take any this and that. No, 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 wait a minute. By God, don't say boo, son, I'll whoop your ass. I mean, uh, uh, don't say boo to me when I tell you that because I'm telling you that God's truth. And that's not to cover anything. It's just to tell you the truth about the matter. You can take my word or you can take the goddamn movie magazines. You know. But what if Elvis just wanted to hide away? Elvis was too big a star, and Graceland was too small for that. There are some people that believe that Elvis is in hiding at Cooper Creek Baptist Church in Denton, Texas cleverly disguised as Pastor Bob Joyce. Bob Joyce bears a remarkable likeness to Elvis and is exactly the same age as Elvis would be if still alive. He plays the piano well and has a phenomenal singing voice that is uncannily like Elvis. The pastor is even said to have the same scars as Elvis. In a later interview with Priscilla, when asked, what would Elvis be doing if he were alive today? She answered, Elvis would be a preacher. He loved to preach and he loved the Bible. In the 1980s, a recording surfaced, reportedly from the king himself, describing his current lifestyle. The recording shocked Elvis fans from around the world as he learned that Elvis was still alive and in the Witness Protection Program. Let's have a listen. I started traveling all over the world. And it's been, uh, it's been enjoyable, but it's, it's been a constant battle of uh, growing beards and, and this and that to, to keep from being recognized. Anyway, uh, the first place that I wanted to see in Germany, there's a place called Wiesbaden. Uh, I don't know whether or not you've ever seen Wiesbaden before, but uh, my girlfriend was with me, and we went to a place to get something to eat. And uh, a waitress asked me what we'd like to have. And I said, I, I don't know really, I, what would you suggest? And, and she stood still. She just kept staring at me, and, and I started getting very nervous. About the, uh, at the time, I, I had a beard, and I lost a few pounds. And I thought it would be, I thought it would be very, very hard for anyone to recognize me. And then, uh, and then she asked me if I'd ever been to Germany in the past. And then, uh, and then I got more nervous. <laughs> but uh, she said, you know, I, I, I never forget a face. And then she said, I don't know how you did it. And she said, I don't care how you did it. I just hope that, that you're as happy as you've made me tonight. However, upon further investigation, we learned that this clip was commissioned by a film crew for a sensationalistic documentary 
and that a known Elvis impersonator voice acted the entire sequence. There are many, however, that believe they have not only heard Elvis, but they have seen him also. In Ottawa, Canada, there have been so many Elvis sightings that a group was formed to study the phenomenon, the Elvis Sighting Society. They even had an unnamed roadway named Elvis Lives Lane, and even documented Elvis ordering a double-double at Tim Hortons. We can laugh because that is what Elvis would have done. But if we take a serious look into the last night of Elvis's life, we have a great deal of unanswered questions that may lead you to believe any number of conspiracies. Is Elvis Presley alive? Absolutely, I would testify it in a court of law. Dr. Donald Hinton's a Kansas City MD and board-certified psychiatrist who insists he's treating the king. I would never treat anyone without seeing them eye to eye, and it is truly Elvis Aaron Presley. There's absolutely no doubt. Some of the claims we've heard before, the medical examiner's report, purposely incomplete, insurance policies left uncashed, an unsigned will, and a body in a coffin that appeared to be sweating, possibly made of wax. His hairline was looked as if it had been a, a hairpiece or something glued on. There were a lot of comments about, you know, it just didn't look like Elvis Presley. From the beginning, family members questioned the death. Dr. Hinton now confirms their suspicions. The colonel said that uh, he had some powerful friends in Las Vegas that could pull it off. Hinton says Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, arranged the hoax, that Elvis was given an injection to only appear dead. The colonel told Elvis that in doing this, meaning in faking his death, that the colonel would make more money off of this than Elvis made in his entire lifetime. He felt that if he didn't uh, escape, that he would literally be dead within a year. What about now? He suffers a lot of pain and he suffers a lot of depression. Hinton claims there's proof. Where else? I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland. The biggest clue that Elvis is still alive is right here at Graceland. In fact, they say it's written all over his tombstone. His middle name is spelled A-R-O-N with one A. The best-known conspiracy theory out there is the misspelling of Elvis's name on his grave. For the first time, Hinton explains why. Because he didn't want his full real name on a grave that he was not in. It's been the most well-kept secret. Jerry Presley's a second cousin. He speaks of a snapshot, not a theory, but documented evidence that Elvis might be here. I met him in Springfield, Missouri, and he had a very convincing story and, and photographs of Elvis Presley sitting at the gravesite. The picture was taken six months after Elvis's death by a businessman. When the film was developed, it took his breath away. My God, I had Elvis Presley sitting in the doorway, looking out at the fans walking past his grave. Kodak determined that the film was not tampered with. Watch what happens when we scanned the photo onto our computer. So, obviously, right there in front of your face. Graceland firmly denies it's Elvis. We firmly believe that there are uh, plenty of friends and family members um, who believe that as well, that that person who died on August 16th was Elvis. The screen door has been replaced with the metal door, and the windows are now permanently closed. And there's more. Elvis went to visit his friend Muhammad Ali. This 1982 UPI press photo was taken when Muhammad Ali discovered he had Parkinson's disease. When they weren't expecting any press, the picture was taken and Elvis closed his eyes. UPI has no record of the photograph, but we confirmed it was printed in several newspapers, including the Cincinnati Post. was basically covered up by the estate. Dr. Hinton claims the king co-authored this book to expose the truth. For his own personal reasons, 2002 is the year that he has chosen to let the world know that he is still here. The book is a collection of letters allegedly written by Elvis. We took them to Mary Kelly, a leading forensic document examiner and researcher. These are supposed to be five original letters. Mary compared the letters to this known writing, a published letter written to President Richard Nixon in 1972. I examined each of the letters using the microscope. I then also did an intercomparison to ensure that you were looking at really only one writer. Mary found strong similarities with the signature and the letters I and T. The capital letter I resembles a nine. 
I actually phoned a colleague of mine in Tennessee to see if that was some class characteristic that was taught in a writing system in the South. Other letters like the Y were different. If you're going to go to the trouble of imitating someone's writing, why aren't you going to get it right? As of right now, I couldn't reach a conclusion. I couldn't say that they were the same writer, and I certainly couldn't say that they weren't the same writer. I'll remember you. In the book, Dr. Hinton claims to have a picture of Elvis now. It was allegedly taken in 1997 during a visit with Lisa Marie and her son Benji. We compared it to other photographs. The body and shoulders appear similar. Look at the jawline, the cheekbones and the eyes, even the nose. And the boy does appear to resemble this picture of Benji. We sent the picture to three top biometric labs in New York and Massachusetts. Biometric facial scans recently determined that this woman was the girl pictured in this National Geographic magazine years ago. They tried to scan our picture, but unfortunately, it was too grainy. You can tell that that is Elvis Aaron Presley. Linda Felix Johnson's another alleged friend. But he doesn't look the way we expect him to look. Remember, we didn't age with him. This is really for real. If he wishes that I take a lie detector test or submit to any type of examination, I would be more than happy to do that. Lie detection is Al Sterwich's specialty. It goes up in the crescendo. As a certified audio stress analyst and a vice president for Diogenes Incorporated, Al has analyzed thousands of people. He tested Linda and Dr. Hinton for us. I can say that within a, about a 98% degree of certainty, Dr. Hinton and Linda Felix Johnson were telling the truth. These graphs represent Dr. Hinton's responses. Peaks, referred to as Christmas trees, represent truthfulness. On each question, Dr. Hinton appears to be honest. Some of the questions I asked him, I said, is Elvis alive? Was he truthful? Yes. Al asked Hinton if he wrote the book looking for money. His answer? No, and he was very truthful on that. After several hours of questioning, Al believes a lot more than just Hinton's sincerity. Do you think he's alive? <laughs> yes, I do. Do you feel as though you'll be vindicated? This is not a trick. This is not a hoax. It's just the absolute truth. As for a comeback, the only one planned is coming back from the dead, although he does still sing. That voice of his has not left. It is there, and it is beautiful. He's so focused on his own religion and spirituality and what he feels he must do uh, before he truly passes from this earth. Elvis was overweight, and he was taking prescription pills to help him stay awake when needed or to fall asleep. He was supervised by a host of doctors, but mainly observed by Dr. Nick. Even though his weight was not ideal, he was not obese, and even though his diet was typically southern, he was not, as the media portrays, gluttonous. Even the famed fried peanut butter banana sandwich story is, well, myth. In his last hours, Elvis played racquetball, an intensely grueling sport that requires not only mental focus, but an insane amount of cardio. After playing racquetball, Elvis sat down at the piano and finished with Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, the last song he would ever play. As he rested in bed, he found he could not fall asleep and requested medical aid. Still, with no help, he requested additional support in the form of more pills. Unable to still sleep, he took a book with him and sat down on the toilet to read. Later, his girlfriend Ginger Allen found him slumped on the floor, apparently dead. The official cause of death was noted as heart failure. Years later, an investigation shows us that perhaps drugs had a bigger influence in his death. Dr. Nick was brought before the Tennessee Board of Medical Examiners on several charges related to overprescribing drugs to Elvis Presley and other patients. In January 1980, the board suspended his license for three months for indiscriminately prescribing and dispensing controlled substances to 10 people, including Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. In November 1981, Dr. Nick was officially charged in a criminal court with 11 counts of felony of prescribing drugs to nine patients. He was acquitted. 
Five new charges were then brought against him in 1992 by the state of Tennessee for over-prescribing drugs to Elvis. This time, the State Department of Health was determined to revoke the doctor's medical license permanently. But Dr. Nick brought forth another theory. Dr. Nick said that after the autopsy, he noted that Elvis most likely died because he was full of shit and often had accidents on stage where he would literally crap his pants and have to change into different clothes. According to Dr. Nick, the autopsy found Elvis's colon to be five to six inches in diameter compared to an average of two to three inches. And rather than the standard four to five feet long, Elvis's colon was eight to nine feet. He determined that Elvis's weight gain was not body fat but at least a 20 pound turd stuck in his colon. Now, this new theory holds little weight as we are simply taking Dr. Nick's word on it and his experts in the field, which he says talked on the phone with him and made these conclusions. Dr. Nick died in 2016 and it's probably a good thing because if Elvis were alive today, he probably would have fired up the Lisa Marie, flew up 30,000 feet above Memphis, and threw the bastard out the door. Elvis, in a sense, does live forever. His mark, his music, his way, not only is revered worldwide, it echoes in the music throughout time. Everyone is an Elvis fan, whether they know it or not. If you are interested in learning more about Elvis and the many conspiracies concerning his death and life, visit the Facebook group Evidence Elvis Presley is Alive. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey guys, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about a new podcast we just started called Weird News Daily. And like the title suggests, it's weird, it's news, and it's daily. If you like strange, unusual, funny, sometimes scary news stories, grab a beer with us and check it out. Just search Weird News Daily on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory. Brighten your day, your drive, your commute with us. Again, that's Weird News Daily. Thank you. Thank you very much.